Hello, and welcome to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. In this first of a seven-part series, Dorje Lopan Dr. Han Lai teaches about the bardo, or intermediate state between death and birth, through an exploration of Padmasambhava's root verses of the six bardos. This text is part of the great liberation upon hearing, revealed by Karmalingpa, often known in the West as the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Urban Dharma is a Buddhist temple in the heart of Asheville, North Carolina. We are supported by your generosity and by our online store, TibetanSpirit.com. To learn more about us, come visit our temple in person or look us up online at UdharmaNC.com. Thanks for listening. I was hoping that there was going to be translation. <laughs> so half the time I can be jet lagged and asleep. So, in any case, um, we'll start with um, a simple uh, supplication. Uh, it is believed that these teachings were uh, given to the Tibetans uh, by an Indian Buddhist master uh, by the name of Padmasambhava uh, or Guru Rinpoche. Uh, so they say that in the 8th century uh, this Indian master Padmasambhava or Guru Rinpoche uh, went from uh, India to Tibet. Uh, so when he was there, uh, he gave uh, many teachings to many people. Uh, in some cases, these teachings were openly given to um, groups of people. And so then everybody uh, knew about them. Then in many other cases, the teachings were only given to certain people, certain individuals, uh, including non-human beings in Tibet. Um, And almost like you could say they are time capsules. So they were given to certain individuals whether human or non-human and then it's told to them to keep this teaching for a few hundred years and not to uh, publicly uh, discuss these teachings until a time in the future so the reason is not that Pamasambhava uh, was hiding anything. Uh, but the reason for that is that there is a time, uh, there's a set of circumstances and conditions uh, that is necessary for anything to flourish. Uh, so, so he knew when these teachings will become very useful, uh, particularly powerful at different times in the future. 
So this particular uh, text that we're looking at uh, is said to have been given in the 8th century, uh, but not publicly revealed until basically 600 years later, sometime in the 14th century. Um, there was a master by the name of Karma Lingpa who uh, started to recall these teachings. Um, and so I'll say a little bit more about this, this whole um, style of concealing teachings and uh, revealing teachings at a later point. These are called treasures. Uh, in Tibetan, it's called therma. Ter. Uh, so, this so-called Tibetan Book of the Dead is uh, a, a therma, basically. And so all of this originated with Guru Rinpoche of Pema Sambhava uh, in the 8th century. But of course, Pema Sambhava uh, didn't create that yeah, did not create or made up these teachings. Yeah, these were teachings that he himself received from his teachers. Uh, but the style, of course, you can say, uh, is Pamasambhava's style of teaching. Uh, so before we start, or before we go on any further, uh, I'm sure many of you know uh, Pamasambhava's uh, seven-line prayer. Uh, if you don't know, it doesn't matter. Uh, you can just listen to the seven-line prayer. Uh, and then those of us who know that prayer, uh, we can together do this supplication uh, to Pemasambhava or to Guru Ramachi. Oh. Uh-huh. 
so I mentioned, uh, so there's this tradition in Tibet uh, of uh, teachings, uh, Dharma teachings that were given and then hidden away uh, and then recovered at some point in the future. This idea of teachings uh, given and then to be recovered later, uh, of course, we already see that in uh, Indian Buddhism. Uh, Various times it is said that, uh, for example, the Mahayana Sutras uh, were given uh, to certain bodhisattvas, certain beings, and then only revealed later in a future point. Uh, so then, uh, for example, it's said that the uh, Pranyaparamita, uh, the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, that those were given and then uh, entrusted or uh, given to the Nagas uh, for them to guard until a future point uh, when someone like Nagarjuna, Longsupusa, uh, that he is the one that is supposed to uh, review or bring back these teachings in the, the world of humans and to make them and to clarify them and to teach them at a proper time. So in India, you already have uh, this kind of idea of uh, Buddhist teachings, Buddhist teachings uh, being put away temporarily until. Uh, a proper time in a proper place when it is most needed then it will reappear Um, so then in Tibet uh, you also have this Uh, and particularly in Tibet um, in part it has to do with I think uh, Tibetan people uh, and their particular kind of uh, karma or their particular culture Tibet wasn't necessarily uh, a very peaceful place uh, throughout Tibetan history. Um, In that, uh, you can think of it in terms of how difficult life is in Tibet. I don't know how many of you have been to Tibet, but uh, it's not an easy place to live. So resources are very limited. Uh, so, because of that, I think, uh, people tend to guard whatever resources that they have in this one valley here. Uh, you have to guard it very strongly, because otherwise, someone else in some other valley uh, might need those resources just to be alive. So because of that, you know, throughout Tibetan history, Uh, Even though they are, they were, a Buddhist nation, uh, nonetheless, there was a lot uh, of uh, fighting. Uh, But the fighting wasn't over who has the right interpretation of Dharma and who has the wrong interpretation of Dharma. The fighting was over very limited resources. Uh, And so, there was a constant danger of the Dharma uh, disappearing 
whenever these types of wars took place. Because whenever wars took place, uh, war, the way wars are, uh, even monasteries get destroyed, monasteries get burned. And so there's a constant kind of threat of the Dharma disappearing. Uh, so perhaps knowing that, Prema uh, Sambhava, Guru Rinpoche, in the 8th century, uh, very kindly kind of made these uh, time capsules that he then hid in different places throughout the landscape of Tibet. Not only did he hide in the landscape, in the land of Tibet, uh, these teachings were also hidden in the minds of people. Uh, People that he knew would be reborn in Tibet at a certain time. And then uh, these people uh, would one day sometimes very suddenly, without any particular practice of Dharma, but in some cases, because they practice Dharma, uh, then they will have these kind of, you can say, flashback memories of having heard these teachings from Pema and they can start reciting uh, these teachings from memory. So those are called mind terma, gongte in Tibetan. So those are treasures that are hidden in the minds of individuals. Then there are also treasures hidden into the land, into the landscape of Tibet, into monasteries uh, like Samye Monastery, uh, the oldest monastery in Tibet. Many of the pillars of Samye, uh, Samye was built in the 8th century. It seems that many of the pillars uh, had hidden teachings that different individuals at the right time uh, were able to extract these scrolls basically that are written and put into these pillars sometimes into walls uh, sometimes underground so into pillars what we're talking about is not like someone will come and uh, get a contractor to you know open a hole to get things uh, we're talking about somewhat magic right uh, so pillar is solid uh, but somehow the particular uh, master's hands fingers right, can dig into the pillar and pull things out yeah uh, even until now uh, there are these types of individuals in Tibet uh, who have gone to like caves, rock surfaces, uh, and then put their fingers in, into this rock, and pull out sometimes texts, uh, but a lot of times statues. And when these statues and texts come out, they are hot, like really hot. Uh, have to immediately drop on the ground. Uh, so it's still happening today. Uh, these these types of uh, treasures being recovered that has been hidden long time ago. So this uh, particular uh, the text that we're looking at is part of a much larger text. It's called uh, the the whole text itself. Uh, it's called 
the great liberation by hearing in the intermediate states. Great liberation by hearing in the intermediate states. Uh, in Tibetan, is uh, the short title is Bardo Todo. Bardo is uh, intermediate states. In Sanskrit, is Antarabhava. Antara, like our Malay word, is a Sanskrit word. Antara means what? In Malay? In between. In between. Yeah. So, Bhava is uh, like existence. So, Antarabhava. So, so here, uh, the idea is that uh, through listening, through hearing these teachings, when we are in the Antarabhava, liberation is possible. Liberation is possible. Through hearing these teachings in the Antarabhava. Now, in India, in Indian Buddhist texts, the idea of Antarabhava uh, was limited to whenever Indian Buddhist texts talked about Antarabhava, they were talking about the Antara, the in-between of this life and next life. So that's what they mean when they say Antarabhava or Bardo. So uh, the earliest evidence we have of this explicit idea of Antarabhava uh, is in um, Sarvastivada uh, Abhidhamma text. So in the Sarvastivada uh, uh, these Abhidhamma texts they have these discussions, these, these teachings about, uh, they believe that when someone dies and before this person is reborn into the next life, there is a period that is antarabhava. And so between this bhava and this bhava, there is the in-between. Uh, among the early uh, Indian Buddhist traditions, uh, many traditions accept this idea of Antarabhava. We say that uh, there were as many as 18 different Buddhist traditions. A few hundred years after the death of the Buddha, uh, there were at least 18 of these different Buddhist traditions. Um, many of these traditions developed in different areas of India, northern India and central India in particular. Uh, due to the kind of different development, different histories, different communities, um, the Abhidhamma tend to have differences. So in the tradition that has come down to us now as Theravada, Theravada is the Sri Lankan branch of a larger movement that also began in India. But it was in Sri Lanka that they developed the identity of Theravada. So the Theravada tradition is one of those traditions that don't accept this Antarabhava. 
when they don't accept this uh, idea of antara bhava, there are passages in the suttas. There are passages in the suttas that seems to suggest there is antara bhava, right? But when they don't accept it, then they have to find ways to kind of explain away right? these references. So there are certain places where in the sutras, the Buddha said, you know, uh, uh, those who have died and those who have yet to be born. You know, he, he, he said things like that. Right? Those who have died, but who have yet to be born. Right? Then you said, oh wait, what is that talking about? Right? If there is no antara bhava, if immediate after end of one bhava is the beginning of the next bhava, then why would the Buddha say those who have died and not yet born? Right? So traditions like uh, Theravada and other traditions also, uh, those other traditions don't exist anymore today. They, they will have to find ways to explain it. Uh, now, Sarvastivada and other traditions that do accept Antara Baba, uh, they then begin to expand on what this Antarabhava means. So this is just a little bit of kind of historical background uh, to understanding what is this Antarabhava? What is this Bardo? What is this intermediate state? An in-between state. So in the Sarvastivada Abhidharma text, um, they talk about that when, when someone dies, and, and specifically human being, when a human being dies from this life, uh, there will be a period, uh, this in-between period, that they go through before they are born into next life. With one exception. If your next life is the hell realms, then there's no Antarabhava then it's immediate. But if your next life is not the hell realm, then there is this period of the Antarabhava. Uh, then this Antarabhava, uh, basically they talk about it as um, uh, the details in the Abhidharma, Sarvastivada Abhidharma, in Abhidharma Kosha, uh, is something along these lines. It says that uh, uh, first when you're in the Antarabhava, uh, you, you appear in a form, right, in a form that resembles your last lifetime. But somewhere in the middle of being in the Antarabhava, this form becomes less and less and it changes to resemble more and more of next life until the time is right then you'll be born huh, into the next life and it said that it will last for a maximum of 49 days 49 days maximum uh, the Abhidhamma Kosha call the beings that are in the Antarabhava Gandharvas uh, Gandharvas uh, literally mean smell eaters. Those who eat smells. Uh, Ganda, 
is smell. Kanda is smell. Uh, so like the eight offerings that we do, Gande. Yeah. Gande is the offering of smell. So Gandharvas are those who eat smells. So we believe that uh, beings in this intermediate state, uh, they need nourishment. How do they nourish themselves? By smelling. By smelling the food. So this uh, offering of uh, aroma or smell, burnt offering, is to feed them, to give nourishment to these beings in the Antarabhava. So there's, so those are the kind of basic Indian Buddhist ideas about this Antarabhava. So those Indian Buddhist ideas, I would say today, uh, those ideas, you know, of course not today, but then from there, those ideas spread to China. Yeah, those te- those teachings spread to China. Those teachings then spread uh, eastwards to China. Then from China, it goes to Japan, goes to Korea, goes south to Vietnam. Right? Some of these other transmission goes north. So it goes north, it goes to Tibet. Goes to Tibet, goes to Bhutan, goes to Mongolia. This is the northern direction. Now, uh, what's interesting is, I think these Antarabhava teachings, when they move outwards, they further develop. They, they further develop. In China, the Antarabhava teachings, the particular development of Antarabhava teachings took on a bureaucratic development. In Tibet, they took on a psychological development. It's very interesting. What do I mean in China uh, these teachings, you can say that the development in China, the emphasis is on bureaucracy. And then in Tibet, the emphasis is psychological. Can you guess how, let's say in China, it's bureaucracy? Any ideas? Think about in Chinese Buddhism when they talk about Zhongying. What are they talking about usually? Hmm? No, Amitabha is not Zhongying, right? That's the other situation where there's no Zhongying if you go to the Pure Land. Yeah. So either you go to the hell realm or you go to the pure land. Otherwise, there's Zhongyi. But how do the Chinese think about Zhongyi? Threatening. Huh? Threatening. Threatening, but what else goes on there? What else happens in the Antara Bhava, the Zhongyi, in the Chinese Buddhism? 
yeah, the ghost, okay. What happens to the ghost? Wandering around. <laughs> Not just wandering around, actually. Hmm? Ah. Yeah, so what, what happens? So you have to go through what? You have to go through what? So you have to go through 10 of these court by court by court. Right? Then all these court officials will come out with the paperwork. <laughs> then even these stories of like misfiled paperwork. Right? A lot of stories like that. Wrong identity. Yeah? Yeah. You know, you have stories of people who end up there and say, no, 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 I'm not supposed to die yet. Then, you know, you know then the judge says, oh, of course. Paper here says, you know, this, 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 this. And then, you know, the person said, no, 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 I wasn't born in the year of chicken. <laughs> then, you know, the, the, the judge will look at the, one of the officials and say, hey, you got the wrong person, right? Send <laughs> <laughs> back. Yeah. So in, in, in Chinese Buddhism, it, it really takes on this whole idea of bureaucratic. Right? You go through, and it's basically, even our Chinese word for uh, negative karma, what is the Chinese word? Negative karma. Right? The word zui. What kind of word is that? Huh? No, what kind of word is that? Where do you find that word occurring? In economic text? In psychological text? In what kind of text? Legal text. So even the choice in China to translate what in Sanskrit or Pali as papa, punya, is merit, Papa is demerit. In China, they chose the word zui, which is a legal term. And you see, when Buddhism spreads, each culture has its own way. Because it made sense to the Chinese to think of karma as zui. That if you have done something wrong, you have gone against the law. Why do you think they chose that word? Yeah. To govern the people. It was very useful for the government. For Buddhists to use the same word as the word that they're going to use to control the people, right? But never mind, today we're not talking about that. Just pointing out. So the whole development of the Zhongying in China, mostly, not completely, mostly has emphasized on a legal framework to understand your problem. They use a legal framework uh, to understand your problem. So if you don't want to be judged by the judges, 
then you better do this, 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 or that. And if you have already gone in and now you're being judged by the judges, then you have to do this, 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 and that. Right? So that's the way it has developed in East Asia, in China, Korea, Japan. Yeah. In Tibet, the Antara Baba teachings take on a different direction. As we will see, they develop the Antara Baba teachings uh, with almost no legal sense. There are some stories. Uh, there is a, a collection of stories uh, in Tibetan. They are known as the Delok stories. Delok stories is basically uh, people who have died and then after a few days they come back alive and they talk about being taken on to a tour into the hell realms and then they tell all the stories and we have that in Chinese Buddhism also right uh, dreams or whatever then they come back and write about that so in some of the Delau stories you have a sense of like judgment there but majority of Tibetan Buddhist material that talks about Antara Baba on Zhongying completely takes it in this kind of a more psychologized understanding yeah? they take it in a more psychologized understanding um, this in part explains I think why in the West like right now uh, Chinese Buddhism is not that popular uh, Tibetan Buddhism is popular Tibetan Buddhism is popular in the West not because of all the Jambala Pujas huh? <laughs> in fact most of them have no idea what those things are uh, they're not that interested in the rituals uh, but they're interested in the kind of psychological mind meditation things like that so the Chinese model of bureaucracy and law and legality not very interesting to Westerners to think in terms of uh, legal terms about your own kind of inner life so that's I think one, one, one of the reasons why Chinese Buddhism has not made such strong impact in the West right now. And in any case, so the original uh, Bado teachings, the original idea of Bado or intermediate state uh, is on uh, that period between this life and next life, right? But when Pemasambhava starts teaching about the bardo, uh, he expands on the idea of bardo. Yeah? Now, like I said, we don't say that he made, he made it up. Yeah? We believe that he himself received this from his teachers. Uh, and then he explain it in such a way uh, that bardo 
there isn't just one bardo. Bardo is not just about in between this life and the next life. Instead, he talks about six bardos. So if you look at your text, it says the root verses of the six bardos from the great liberation upon hearing in the bardo. So now, bardo or zhongyi is not just between this life and next life. In fact, of these three bard, of these six bardos, the last two, the last two, is between this life and next life. The first four bardos is from birth to death. From birth to death, there are four bardos. Then after you're dead, or after the death moment has occurred, then is bardo five and bardo six. So if you look at, at the end of this handout, I've listed out the six bardos. Let's look at that. The bardo of this life, sometimes called the natural bardo of this life. Then within the bardo of this life, there is the bardo of the dream state. There is the bardo of the meditation state. Then when you are actively dying, that's the fourth bardo. When you're actively dying, that's the fourth bardo. It's called the bardo of dying or the painful bardo of dying. Then there is the luminous bardo of dharmata. Then there is the karmic bardo of becoming. That means rebirth. So the traditional zhongyi is five and six. Like what we more commonly among Chinese, when we talk about zhongyi, we usually we're only talking about five and six. But in Guru Rinpoche's teachings, he says actually there are six. Not just the one where you have ghosts wandering around. (laughs) (laughs) So any questions before we move on? I think the crows have a lot of questions, but don't know what they're asking. Is it among all schools? I think I think only the Tibetans are uh, using this opportunity to get leverages. Now, mm. you mean like using what? The, that, the five and six. Five and six. Uh, I think in other t- Mahayana traditions, Chinese Buddhism too, yeah. that you can do things, you know, to help. I think modern Chinese Buddhism has uh, forgotten a lot of rituals for five and six. Modern Chinese Buddhism, uh, the Chinese Buddhism that's coming from Taiwan, you know. 
that's basically a modern, modernized version of Chinese Buddhism. Uh, during the time of uh, end of Qing Dynasty, beginning of you know end of Qing and beginning of the Republican period, uh, you have this Renjian Fo Jia, right? There, a lot of the teachers got rid of more traditional things. Uh, then, Wenhua Geming got rid of more of that. Uh, but otherwise, there's all kinds of rituals. <laughs> now, I think in Chinese Buddhism, uh, people do the, the seven days, right? Every, like the first seven days, the third, the fifth, right? Yeah, then the, 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 the seventh, right? And mostly now, if you go to the first one, the prayers they say is exactly the same as the third one, exactly the same as the fifth one, exactly the same as the seventh one, because there's nothing else they know what to do. Just recite, you know, the usual things, Amitojing, and you know, that's it. So there's, there's a great simplification in modern Chinese Buddhism. You go back about a hundred years, it's a whole different story. No, it's a reaction against being called Taoism that Buddhists threw out all their traditions. Chinese Buddhism. Buddhism itself, many years back, they had this kind of Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's part of the culture, you know. Uh, but during uh, this modern period, uh, Chinese Buddhists themselves, I don't know. They're a little bit embarrassed about their traditions. So that means this is part of the culture rather than actual practice of Buddhism? Well, Buddhism always comes with culture, culture you know? Yeah. <laughs> then Chinese Buddhists got embarrassed of their culture, then threw everything out and simplified everything and said, oh, this is true Buddhism, but you know, true or not true. <laughs> but I think the main point is that the culture can change. Yeah, so if if people feel that the old culture doesn't make sense to them anymore, then it doesn't make sense to them anymore. Uh, but in in so like in Korean Buddhism and Japanese Buddhism, which they got from China, they have kept many of those traditions. Yeah, so they do different things for this the forty nine days. Like the now the Shi Wang Chan, we don't do. Mm -hmm. There are things like this. There must be some kind of basis for this kind of tradition. What was the original intention of it? Um, the idea is that at different points of this 49 days, uh, the being in the bardo is experiencing different things. Yeah, so you want to provide guidance for them to kind of navigate this period. Uh, now, when we come back to this text that we have now, uh, it's the same idea. The idea is you listen and you hear the teachings. And if you know how to listen and to hear the teachings, then in any of these six bhagas, 
you can achieve liberation. You can be free. So if we come back to this text, what you see Guru Rinpoche doing is, um, Bardo is not just something that happens, you know, after you're dead. Right now, we are in the Bardo. Because what is the basic meaning of Bardo? In between. Right? In between. So we're always in between. Right now, we're in between this life and death. Then, after death, you're in between death and the next birth. Right now, in a smaller scale, we're in between waking up and going to sleep. When we go to sleep tonight, we're in between falling asleep and waking up. Yes, then you are in another in between. Huh? Then you are in another in between. Right? Then you have entered the in between of this life and next life. Yeah, so no matter where we are, yeah, Pema Sambhava is pointing out, no matter where we are, we're in between. So what does it mean to be in between? It has a sense of hanging in between. Meaning what? What, the, what, what, what what do you get what sense do you get when we say you're hanging in between huh? limbo okay what does that mean uncertain you're not arrived yet right so if you really think about it in every moment of our lives We've not arrived. This is the state of samsara. Happiness is always something that is happening over there. You're never satisfied. First, you want to make your first 10,000. Then you think when you arrive at your first 10,000, you want your first 100,000. When you have your first hundred thousand, you want your first million. When you arrive at your first million, you want your first ten million. Right? You enter a job, you're at the lowest end of that category. Then you climb, climb, climb. You finally get to the highest. You realize that you are at the end of another path. Right? And you climb, climb, climb. You get to where you want. Then you look up. <laughs> There's someone else up there. <laughs> it's always in between we never arrive so in fact the word bhava in Sanskrit often it is translated as life you know but it's not life you, you know this thing they call the wheel of life right that's a mistranslation yeah? it's the wheel of bhava and bhava Literally, it's becoming. 
And what does becoming mean? What is the opposite of becoming in this case? <laughs> no, in this case. Being. Being. We are never just being. We're always becoming. And this becoming never arrives. <laughs> no, we're never, we're rarely, let's say, just being, just at ease. We're always seeking something else. And we're always seeking something else. As long as we exist this way, then bhava is dukkha. See, it's not good to say life is dukkha. <laughs> then if you think, you know, life is dukkha, then death is sukkha. <laughs> So, most people think, you know, a good Buddhist is always Dukkha. <laughs> Seeking for Sukkha, then everything finished, then Sukkha. Then on your way to, you know, coming back to temple or going to temple, you know, you drive past the church, you see, wow, those people are so happy, huh? <laughs> so sometimes you think, you know, what is wrong with us, huh? <laughs> and then if you are a confirmed Buddhist, you know, you look at those happy people, you say, huh, silly. They should be very dukkha. <laughs> they continue driving, right? In part, it's because we have mistranslated Buddhas. Buddhas say is, power is dukkha. But the, the word in English, life, means something else. Life is always good in the English language. And so the idea of life, so if we mistranslate and say life is dukkha, then of course Buddhists should always walk around. Like every day you have died, a father <laughs> has died, you know. <laughs> We say say your little town. They should walk around every day like you know, because life is dukkha. No, life is not dukkha. Life can either be samsaric life or nirvanic life. Nirvana is when uh, is unbound. Yeah? When this knot is untied, yeah? then it's no longer bhava. That's what we call like cessation. Niroda. Niroda ceased. What has ceased is bhava. So becoming. Always changing, changing, becoming, becoming. If, when that becoming has ended, that means when we are free from the in-between, when we have finally arrived, then 
then that's no more dukkha. So we're always in between. There's a joke, you know. There's there's one joke they they tell. They said there's a restaurant with a sign that says, mm, "Tomorrow lunch is free." So these monks saw the sign. So they came tomorrow. So they ate. So they ate a lot. So then the the waiter came with a bill, you know. The monk said, yesterday we came, it says tomorrow food is free. Then the, the waiter said, yeah, yes, yes. Still the sign is saying, tomorrow is free lunch. <laughs> so, you know, tomorrow never comes, you know. <laughs> tomorrow never comes, you know. So that's how we live, you know, like happiness never comes. Happiness never comes not because happiness is somewhere else. Happiness never comes because we don't recognize it. We don't know what to do with it. We're always looking for something else. Yeah, so bardo here, in the way that Guru Rinpoche is using bardo, is very similar. But there's another sense of bardo, which I think is a little bit different from... Uh, well, maybe. Let's see. I'll see if, what you think about it. Another way, uh, bardo, bardo has another quality. Not only is it in between, uh, not quite there yet, there's also a sense of, um, if we go back to the original meaning of antarabhava, that means between this life and next life, the way they describe antarabhava is that it's a place where Things are very confusing. It's a place where what you find to be reliable, that you can count on, that you can be sure about, all those have changed. Hmm? All your points of reference. Like, for example, you come to a traffic light, if it is red, if it is green, you can expect that you can safely pass. No one's going to come from the sides. But now in the bardo, who knows? Right? So a sense of the bardo antarabhava is nothing is certain anymore. Nothing is clear. Everything is confusing. Now Guru Rinpoche is saying, actually, that doesn't only happen in between this life and next life. That also happens right now. Now, again, in the original emphasis on Antarabhava, they say, if, even though it is very confusing, it is, nothing is reliable. Everything is moving around like a dream, right? They say, it has one special quality.
The dangers are great. The uncertainties are great. What is also great? Th- those are those are considered to be undesirable. But there's one desirable quality. What is also great? Possibility. Hmm? A lot of possibility. Possibility for what? Specifically? Liberation. The chances of liberation is also great. Because all the things that are normally solid, they're no longer that solid. Yet the five aggregates, they say, is not so strong at all. In fact, they have dispersed. So it also means that right now, some of you might have, might find yourself in a situation where everything is very confusing. Things are unclear. Things are a little bit worrisome. Things are uh, not at ease. If we just treat it that way right, and say, oh, you know, I wish I'm, I'm done with this. And then we go to Buddha, we go to Bodhisattvas, then we go to, I don't know, whatever gong, you know. <laughs> you try one gong, it doesn't work, you try another gong, you know. <laughs> to make things clear again. But when things are clear, it only means that you have found a prison that you're comfortable in. Because we're so used to being confined in a prison, now prison has disappeared, you say, oh please, can I get back to my prison? Because because it's too too strange too challenging Guru Mbache is saying if you can recognize what is going on right now that what you call uh, what you consider to be lack of reliability lack of certainty lack of reference point is in fact based on your confusion that what you, what you are actually in is in a state of freedom but you are experiencing it as a terrifying state because you have gone so used to being in a prison you don't know what to do with free space Mm, yeah. <laughs> we want things to be clear. We want things to be stable. We want things to be sure. But they're not just appearances. Yeah. 
So that's the general idea here of what Pemasambhava did with this basic teachings about Antarabhava. And he's going to talk about these six types of Antarabhava. Sometimes these six types are said to be only four. So if you look at the listing there, uh, on the second part, natural barter of this life, painful barter of dying, luminous barter of dharmata, and karmic barter of becoming. Uh, these are the four. Then within natural barter of this life, there is two more, which is the dream state and the meditation state. Now why dream state and meditation state in particular? Because these are two times during this natural barter where things are a little bit unstable. When you're in a dream, things are a little bit unstable. As in, not business as usual. Unstable in that sense. Not business as usual. So in dreams, you can do all kinds of things. Some of those things you don't want people to know. <laughs> it's your own dreams, right? Some of the things are really ridiculous things. Some of the things are really funny things. Some of the things are really confusing things. Some of the things are really nice things. Yeah. But it's a little bit not normal. Likewise, in meditation, it's also a time where it's not business as usual. It's a different state of mind that is going on. So they are then explained to be two more. So altogether, six barters, six intermediate states. Thank you for listening to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting our mission to foster a deeper understanding of the teachings of the Buddha, to build meaningful community, and to integrate contemplative teachings into everyday life. We invite you to make a donation online at udharmanc.com or make a purchase at our store, tibetanspirit.com. Thank you. May all beings benefit.